Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching The Color Purple. A black southern woman struggles to find her identity after suffering abuse from her father and others over four decades. So good. It really was. I was surprised by how good this was. It's a staggering movie. Like, felt very uncomfortable with, <laughs> with, with this very black story being directed by spielberg that feels weird <laughs> especially in today but it was very well done this cast is amazing the thing i circle back with this movie is that this is 1985 and it's 8 1985 so it's just like okay if it, this movie was being made today they would push so much more on things and i think they would push in some ways that would take away from the overall story maybe well i feel like there would be this like okay particularly with the incest and the sexual violence, I feel like they would have pushed so much more into that. And that's heartbreaking and horrible. And I, I don't want to get away from that reality, but that I don't think is the point of this story. So we, we can talk a little bit about that with writing. Because sure. there, there is an inevitable comparison. This is based off a novel. Sure. And that novel is very different. Okay. We, we don't have to go into all of it right this second. But there is a stark difference. However, what I will tell you is that the story is not very starkly different. Okay. There are a couple of elements that are. Sure. But they have to make things tighter for a movie. That's always the case. It is the tone of this story mm -hmm. that is very vastly different mm -hmm. than what was written okay. in the novel. And that's what bringing Spielberg on brings you. Okay. Knowing the trivia. Okay. Which I, we don't just want to reveal right no. on the second. We got to talk through that. I think this movie succeeds in showing this story, mm -hmm. which was a huge fucking deal. Yes. In a way where it was going to be embraced by a much bigger audience. Yeah, it was. He was able to make it palatable to a. Let's just say it's gonna it's gonna make white people want to see it. Let, let's just say that's what he did. He made it so that white people would go see it. Yeah. Like I mean, that's what it is. What I do think, however, is that unfortunately, I feel like this movie could maybe be considered a template for some of the movies that have received criticism for being this way. But this movie does not pull punches like those other movies do. No, like we, I mean, we've we've complained about Green Book and oh like the like the problem, like the biggest problem with Green Book is that it makes white people feel okay about past racism. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like that there's even a shadow of that here. No. There's nothing here that paints that as an okay. Because like, this story is dealing with, you know. So many things. It's dealing with so many layers of trauma <laughs> that have to be reckoned with Absolutely. in life. And that Spielberg magical quality is layered all over this, but it works. <laughs> well, the thing that I noticed... In watching this film, was we're watching Celie have this whole experience, but she's surrounded by these other women. And what's interesting is they all go through these different versions of tragedy, but they all also get this justice in their life. Yeah. So that's where it's beautiful the way it all happens. It's not easy. There's a certain element of cheesy, but it's still earned. So I don't. I don't care. Um, and it still feels beautiful. Like in this, like, like this is in the film world, this is a work of fiction. So I don't care. The story that's being told is still 
is still beautiful. So I, I'm just, I don't get that. It was really well. There's a really great quote mm-hmm. from Roger Ebert. Okay. Who lauded this movie. He's put it on his great movies list. Fair. He considers this a five-star movie. Okay. The world of Seeley and the others is created so forcibly in this movie that their corner of the South becomes one of those movie places like Oz, like Terra, like Casablanca, that lay claim to their own geography in our imaginations. The affirmation at the end of the film is so joyous that this is one of the few movies in a long time that inspires tears of happiness and Mm -hmm. earns them. Yes. That's the biggest key. That's the thing where like you're crying because you're happy and it's like, I'm so happy for these characters because you're expecting devastation. You're just expecting sadness. You're expecting the sister to just be dead. Oh, she finally finds these letters and then you find out that she's passed. Like you're just expecting to be like, oh, she's made complete, but it's still sad. It's like, no. And every single one of the women that we meet gets a happy ending. Like maybe not happy. A just ending. But they get justice to the situation that they were made, that they got. Suge reconciles with her father. Mm -hmm. Sophia, you know, despite everything, then gets to, you know, make good, you know, gets to reconcile with her family. And she gets to take her place back back as as the... The power in the family, <laughs> which she always was. She always was going to be, which is amazing. And so it's, it is really beautiful. It's such a good film. And the thing is, that's a testament to the novel as well. That's a testament sure. to the story that Alice Walker gave us. That, that's a testament to the story itself. Yeah. And then it was able to be translated into this movie so well. And like you and I both said this after the film, I want to see the musical so bad now. Oh, yeah. I so want to, especially knowing who is on that cast recording now. I'm like, fuck yes, I want to see this. Well, the the musical is being made into a film. Oh, I'm here for that. It's being adapted, and the director of Beyonce's Black is King video is going to be directing the film version, the film adaptation of the Color Purple musical. I'm here for it. And Spielberg is producing that. Oh, great. Which is perfect role for him to come in for this. We've, As we've discussed, he is a great producer. Well, there's a lot to dig into without a lot of trivia. Like, there's okay. not a lot that I found about this movie. Okay. But I think it speaks a lot sure. <laughs> for, for us to have a conversation. The budget for this film was $15 million. Its total U.S. gross was $98,500,000. Nice. It did very well. This is a Quincy Jones production more than it is anything. Okay. Yeah. So he is the one who got this ball rolling. And he is the one who wanted to bring Spielberg on. Okay. Steven was very uncomfortable with this prospect. That speaks well of him. The other thing you have to think about with Steven is this is his first, quote, serious movie. Okay. Like, if, if we look at his, his credits, we have Jaws, we have Close Encounters, we have the screwball war comedy 1941, mm-hmm. which flops. Okay. Then he makes Raiders, so he okay. becomes the undisputed king of the blockbuster now. Okay. He makes E.T., then he does the Twilight Zone movie, mm. which became a fiasco because John Landis killed a man on set because he was negligent and doing way too much cocaine. Wow. Okay. And this comes on the heels of that. Mm-hmm. And this is his first drama, like drama, drama. So in many ways, this is a big moment for him. 
This is a big pivot change. Because if he doesn't make this, he doesn't make Empire of the Sun. Mm -hmm. He doesn't make Schindler's List. He doesn't make Saving Private Ryan. No. All that stuff that comes after that Mm -hmm. he pivots into his next part of his career, he never would have done if he didn't make this movie. Yeah, I mean, this this is a turning point for his ability to to do other things. He told Quincy, he was like, I have no knowledge of Southern culture. I think it should be directed by a black person or at least a person of color that's, because I have no comprehension of what that's like. I, I, again, that speaks well of Stephen. Like, I don't know anything about Stephen as a person yeah. and what his politics are here, today in 2020. But in 1985... That speaks well of him. I mean, it, it also speaks to that wonderful problem-solving part. To, of to, it to too. be like, I'm not, I'm not the dude for this. Like that speaks well. I, I know he still did it, but that speaks well that his first response was, "I'm not the guy for this for these reasons," and he spouted his race as one of them. I appre- that speaks well of him in 1985. Absolutely, Quincy Jones rebutted, "Quote: No, I want you to do it." And besides, did you have to be an alien to direct E.T.? Unquote. That's a very Quincy Jones thing to say. <laughs> and Stephen was like, I can't argue with no. that. <laughs> Quincy Jones is a genius. Mm-hmm. He's also not without his demons, but he is a genius. Yeah. At yeah. that point, how do you argue with that man? My next question is, was Alice Walker okay with him directing? Well, let's get into uh, our writing. Okay, let's get into our writing because... We've talked about this in terms of like when something's told about a very specific community. Is it a gay story, a trans story, a, a black story, a Hispanic story? Who's in tra- who's on the creative team? It needs to be someone from that community or it needs to be someone who has the respect and the approval of that community. So, OK, guy who's spearheading the project, Quincy Jones, has said, Stephen, you're right. That's good. But how about everybody else? I'm nervous. I'm really nervous now about what you're going to say. So Alice Walker wrote the novel. Okay, yes. This is the only thing of hers that's ever been adapted for film. The screenplay was written by Menno Maiges. He is a Dutch writer and director. Okay. This is actually like his first big film script. But after this, he writes on Amazing Stories with Stephen, Lionheart, Empire of the Sun, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ricochet, The Siege, And then he wrote and directed the film Max with John Cusack, the story of Hitler as a painter. So what do we think of the writing of this film? Oh, it's lovely. It's very good. I like the way we move through the timeline very well. Like when we first brought the film up, like, oh, two and a half hours. Okay. Two and a half hours of a really dark trauma filled story. All right. Like, okay, we're, you know, this is going to be a two night film. Like, okay, whatever. We did it in one sitting. Yeah. Like, we didn't even take a break. Like, that was it. We just watched it in one sitting. Like, we were at the movie theater, and it was great. Because it's that compelling. It's, it was that compelling. It was so well-paced. It did a really good job of, like, really tense, sad, traumatic thing. And then how we deal with some of this trauma. Then a little bit of lightness. The voiceover is so well done. It's just, it was really smartly written. Like, I, I mean, ha- not having read the book. just really concise that's what i have to say because there's a lot happening and i never felt like it was too much i never felt like oh why like i never felt like we were going off on a tangent that was never important i never felt like we were going off on something that never paid off 
which could often happen when you adapt a book. Like we introduce a character, but that character pays off. Well, what's refreshing is right off the bat, it's not a white savior story because that's the, the only not wh- the story itself. The only white people we meet are villains and we only see them as villains and that's fine. Oh, and they're the worst. They oh, they're the, the worst. They are the worst. <laughs> Miss Millie always going on over the cup. You children are so clean. Would you like to work for me? Be my maid? Hell no. It's also not trauma porn. No. And I know that even some great examples of modern cinema. Sure. Like the way people have talked about 12 Years a Slave Mm -hmm. is that it's amazing, but it is also gruel. Mm -hmm. This movie balances really horrific stuff Mm -hmm. with life and character. I think that's probably the biggest thing. They made these characters so well-rounded. Yeah. So real. And then also allowed them to have moments of joy. Like, like the fact that Albert, who has been this horrible villain throughout yeah. this entire story, yeah. gets a moment of redemption and it doesn't feel bad. Like you feel like, like, no, I get it. No, but you as an audience, forgive him. Yeah. Because it was so easy to be like, fuck that dude. Fuck him. Yeah, of course. Like, and you might still be, and that's fine. But not even that, but just the moment where Celie finds out his name's Albert. She had no idea. She's been with this man for years. She had no idea what his actual name was. And she is tickled to death that she has found out his name is Albert. Those moments, I mean, that to me feels very Steven Spielberg. But those moments peppered through the film, the moment where her sister's teaching her how to read, Mm -hmm. is just like, that's life. Like when your life is hard, there are still those moments of joy and you got to feel that with her. And that was so fun. It is weird because this movie is emotionally manipulative. Just like, again, all of these more modern movies try to do the exact same thing. The difference is, is that this movie doesn't, you don't care. (laughs) You don't care. No, you don't. It's just like, bitches. I hate you. I hate this film. That's the masterfulness (laughs) of, Especially what what Myas is bringing to the table is he's clearly like I know the beats we have to hit, mm-hmm. and I'm sure Stephen was was working with him as well. Sure, but it's like I know what beats we have to hit. I know exactly what tones we have to do, but we're going to flesh that out so well and give enough layers there, sure. and get the right talent. <laughs> sure, and it it was just they just did such a good job with that script. Yeah, it's very very good. Walker also had very serious reservations about Steven Spielberg directing this film. Fair. Walker is a very outspoken activist. Okay. And staunch feminist, staunchly in favor of progressive political views. Okay. So this story is much starker. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say just dark. Mm-hmm. It's just far more matter of fact and goes further than what this film allows there's less subtlety in the book well what steven's very clearly doing Mm -hmm. is creating this sort of what what ebert says he's creating this sort of oz like feel to the world they're in Mm -hmm. and it gives it this almost mythic tragic quality yeah whereas walker's book is very fucking plain yeah about what's going on here and the survival of these characters through that sure so she wound up supporting him mm-hmm. after seeing E.T. Okay. Her quote was that E.T. was treated as a person of color. 
Okay. The way that she saw E.T.'s treatment in that film okay. made her go, you can understand where this is coming from. Then. Okay. That's, so, that's an interesting take. But she hated the final cut of this movie. Okay. When the rushes came out, she she hated what she referred to as the Oklahoma type opening in the flowers. Oh, okay. I could see that. Because it's immediately you have to think. I wrote this book about this very stark story of survival. And it's made to look beautiful. Of women surviving in the South. And she changed her mind at the premiere because she saw the reaction of the oh. audience to the film. Okay. And so what she says is that this movie is completely different from what my book is, mm -hmm. from what it's trying to convey. Sure. But I still think it's valuable. Fair. And I think that's really where she comes down on, on the story of this film. That is such a mature way to be like, you took my thing and you made it something else. But the thing you made is still very good. Yep. Perhaps the thing that you made does not hurt the thing that I made. It doesn't um, diminish her work at all. Like they're, they're allowed to coexist and still be amazing things. She enjoys the film, but thinks of it as being utterly distinct. There you go. Yeah. I mean, Which is exactly, I think, what it is. That's this, fair. That's totally fair. This movie succeeds on its own. Okay. And not because of what the book gave it, right? This film, they are two separate things using the same circumstances and story. They're from their siblings. They're not, they're not twins. And like I said, everything I read, like I, I looked through the plot of the story. Sure. We'll talk about probably the biggest element that Stephen left out. But I know, I know what that is. <laughs> but for the most part, the story beats are exactly the same. Okay. He's not missing it's much the, of the plot. The tone is different. It's the tone and it's the lengths at which it's willing to discuss the harshness of what happened. Sure. Which I agree with you. Some of those things are missing, but some of them add different flavors and context to characters. Sure. That make them more complex in the book. Sure. Not not in like a, you know, it's horrendous or traumatic in a way, but it makes them richer and deeper and complex. Oh, I'm sure. Whereas they aren't necessarily in the film. No, that's okay. I, we, the thing is, even in this film, we have a lot of characters. Yeah. And they're still very well fleshed out in this movie. Exactly. Okay. Balance. Balance. Sure, it is very well balanced. We just got done talking about Close Encounters, how unbalanced that, that is. is. Hot fucking mess. But this movie isn't that. Okay. okay. So like, ugh, I love how her view of this is just wholly different. Now I want to know what she thinks of the musical. Because <laughs> she's still with us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, now we talk about our director. Oh, it's Steven Spielberg. Oh, it's that dude. Hey. It's that dude. So what do we think of his directing of this movie? Uh, we're very in favor. <laughs> I mean, it's just very loving. He cares about the story. He he totally does. There's there's a quality to how he's filming the women that is very different from the other two films that we've seen. And some of the other things that I've seen before, and it reminds me of the episode of Mad Men where Peggy quits. Mm. Spoiler alert for Mad Men. And it's when Dawn holds onto her hand and it's a breakup, but Peggy's breaking up with Dawn. And Peggy is just lit in this most beautiful way. And that is how these women are lit in this movie. Like, it's just meant to make them look like it's like they're being hugged by the camera. <laughs> that's that's like the sense I got. Like, they are always shown in this like in this loving way. And the men are like, fuck off. 
Like, it's very harsh on them. Yeah. Uh, this movie did get some criticism, and the book got criticism, frankly, too, so I don't know necessarily how we feel, but there was some criticism in the black community of this portraying black men in a bad light. Okay. I think that's a really deeper, complex issue that's very specifically a black community discussion. Sure. But I do think that Stephen making that intentional choice definitely highlighted that. <laughs> As you know, with the way he filmed it, for sure. But that's also a major part of the story. That's why I think it works really well. Sure. And I think some of the other like filming criticism is that at times, because this is being, you know, he's portraying the South, the environment Mm -hmm. in a very loving and tender way at times, people I think could read into that as why are you celebrating this? Mm -hmm. You've got this sort of very old school Southern plantation. Yeah. Gone with the Wind vibe here. That's not this movie. But I think it works precisely because what we then see is so brutal in that gorgeous environment. And what it's saying is like this story and these people are real people and and rich characters that are living through hell. (laughs) Well, and then, you know, it's that whole you never know what people are really going through. Uh Uh-huh. You know, whatever's put on the surface. You know, it's just like what her dad tells her at the beginning. You better not never tell nobody but God. It'll kill your mama. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's so hard. Which is to so hard. That's so fucking hard. So many lines in this movie. So many lines where you're just like but and here's the genius behind those lines is that if you just read the line as they take, you're just like, damn. But then when you realize what that actually means. Uh-huh. You're just like, oh, fuck. Fuck. Like, you're 14, and she's had two children taken away from her. She suspects that they're dead for all she knows. And not only that, both of those children are by her father. Uh Uh-huh. That is so fucked up on so many levels. That's the first 10 minutes of this movie. That's the first 10 fucking minutes of this movie. Uh Uh-huh. Jesus fucking Christ. It's a lot. And I was just like, oh, God, that's going to be the whole movie. Oh, God, this is going to be hard. I think probably the weirdest part is like you see this sort of softness and the immediate cue, because we see this again in so many modern interpretations of stories where it's you're doing this to soften the harshness of the story. It's like, that's not what he's doing, though. He's using this very subtle mix of cues and it would take so many viewings to precisely figure out how that's working. But he's doing it. To always keep you engaged in the very real reality of the story without being turned away by it. Well, and between that and the language, you're just like, because like it doesn't even hit you till you're halfway into the next scene. Like, fuck, what just happened? Mm-hmm. He did such he did such a good job, and then just knowing that this was Whoopi and Oprah's film debut. Yep, film debut, and they knocked it the fuck out of the park. Like. That takes a lot from a director. You're new and you don't know what's going on and you may not know what you need to do in this scene and just He's a problem solver. He's a he is a good problem solver. That is that is his secret special skill. It is. And instead of massive special effects and epic scenery, you are dealing with very intense performances that you need to have brought out by in in, raw talent raw talent yeah how are you gonna figure that out raw talent anchored by some powerhouse talent yep 
some some people who are like, I got this. I know what to do in the background. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> Show me my mark. I'm good. I got it. <laughs> so we're very pro Steven Spielberg on this film. We are. Well, his first child was born during the filming of this. Oh, that's. <laughs> so he had to be called away in the middle of filming the birth scene <laughs> with young Seely. Of course. So he left that to his assistant director. And then the crying baby in that scene is the sound of his newborn. Aww, they used it for the film. That's kind of sweet. Since he had to miss directing it. Working with Quincy Jones got a little bit difficult. Quincy handpicked him, but uh, Oprah was Quincy's protege. Yeah. In business, in all dealings. And at one point, Jones got into a shouting match with Spielberg about how much time she was going to get in the film. Oh, okay. Oprah wound up proving that she had plenty of talent. But, like, here's the thing. Like, I, I don't put it on Oprah. That's why yeah. I specifically look at, like, Quincy is stirring some shit up if he's getting into a shouting match with Steven. <laughs> Quincy knew Oprah was a star. Yeah. And, and I, said, get her on screen. Here's, here's my guess. Quincy knew Oprah was better than her tiny little talk show in Chicago. Yeah. And so he thought, ooh, I need to get her in a film and explode her. That's what we need to do. I need to get her in a Steven Spielberg film and explode her. That's what he was trying to do. And it's like, no, no, no. I love Oprah. Oprah was like my other mom. She was my TV mom. <laughs> There was not a fucking day in my house that we I did not come home and Oprah was not on the channel. Oprah taught my mom how to do the Macarena, okay? It was very important in my life. So one of the other reasons is, I was going to leave this for when we talk about her acting. Okay, sure. But out of pure habit, when she started doing scenes, uh -huh. she would look directly at the camera. She would barrel the oh, camera. Sure. Because that's all she'd ever done. That's what she's used to. And so Spielberg, for a while, was pretty amused. Sure. This is just funny. Yeah. But after a while, she kept doing it. And he started to get really frustrated. It's a waste of time. <laughs> but it, it came in the early stages. So if I'm, if I'm going to give this the most generous reading, it was at that point Spielberg started to say, okay, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work. And at some point, he starts maybe talking about, well, are we going to cut down a role in a production meeting? And Quincy shouts him down. And then Spielberg winds up giving a little more time with Oprah, coaching, going, okay, no, she's clearly got it. Yeah, no, that's that's a, this is what I'm used to. I'm I'm totally fine in front of the camera, but I'm used to staring directly at it. That's my job. And now my job is different. Takes an adjustment. <laughs> there. There, that's the polite way to read that situation. I'm just going to read it in the best light possible. Let's put it this way. She got it together. It worked out just fine. Uh -huh. So one of the other biggest criticisms around him, along with just the generic, he's not in touch with the racism or sexism depicted in the novel and the themes around that, is downplaying Seeley and Suge's lesbian relationship. Yep. Which is a major point in the book. Yeah, I knew that. Spielberg has very much on record says he regrets this decision. That's fair. At the time, he was afraid of putting it in the movie mm -hmm. and audiences being turned off by it sure. and the film not being successful. Sure. And he's just said, that was me making my first serious drama, yep. me not understanding the stakes of the story. And he's like, I regret it because at the end of the day, it should have been there. I mean, we get we get a beautiful scene. We get a beautiful scene, and you know, when I was watching it, I was just like, "This is a very." It's just so sweet and loving, and I felt like it was still really respectful the way it was done. 
So I didn't feel like there was anything exploitive. Yeah. Because I feel like, okay, well, if this was done today, this could feel really exploitive. But, you know, of course, it's 1985, early director. And also, again, this is another thing where it's like, he's not the right guy to be telling a lesbian story. Yeah. So, that I mean, so on the one hand, it's like, it's good that you regret it because it was a big part of the story of your source material. But I understand. The movie we got, it doesn't ruin it. Yeah, it it doesn't. But again, I I appreciate Spielberg having a lot of perspective on this movie. Mm-hmm. Just like a lot. Being like, at no point did I feel really comfortable about making this. I did my best. But if I had do-overs, I would do a lot of stuff different now. <laughs> and I'm like, I appreciate that. And that, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, he's grown as a director. He's learned more things. Also, I hope he would say, like, if I could do this over again, I also wouldn't because I shouldn't direct this film. Again, here's the thing. In 1985, to get that kind of representation sure. at all. I, I totally understand. Um, you know, I feel like what we got was handled very respectfully at the time. It's such a good scene. For 1985 lesbianism portrayed in the early 1900s, I thought this was... This was done with a lot of loving care. Oh, it's, it's one of the most beautiful scenes in the it's, film. It's, it's, it's a beautiful scene. Oh. All right, well, let's move on to our cast. Cool. And we start not with the top build. Okay. We start with Whoopi Goldberg. Hell fucking yeah. As Celie Johnson. Her first major film role. Her credit in this movie is and introducing Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. So before this, she's a comedian. And is just off of the success of her Broadway show. Yeah. After this. <laughs> We've talked about her before. Well, we have with Ghost. Yep. But Jumpin' Jack, Flash, Fatal Beauty, Homer and Eddie, Ghost, The Long Walk Home, Soap Dish, Baghdad Cafe, House Party 2, The Player, Sister Act, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, The Lion King, The Little Rascals, Karina Karina, The Page Master, Eddie, Ghost of Mississippi, House Stella Got Her Groove Back, Monkey Bone, Medea Goes to Jail, Toy Story 3, The Muppets, Glee, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 9-11, Rio, Nobody's Fool, and 2020's The Stand. And, and, well, I know it's probably not on there yet, she is going to be in Picard season two. Hey. As Queen. Hey. Because Patrick Stewart went on The View and asked her personally to come back for it. And she said, yes. But yeah, what do we think of Whoopi in this movie? She's amazing. Oh I, my I mean, god, <laughs> she! I love Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, I fucking love Whoopi Goldberg. Most people do. Love her. Love her in Ghost. Loved her in Sister Act one and two. Back in the habit. Love her. Loved her in Star Trek. She is a staple of my youth. Of my youth pop culture. Love her to death. This is just a whole other side of her that I didn't know was there. And I'm just like, oh my god, you're amazing. For this to be your introduction to cinema and you become a legitimate movie star. Like there's a lot of people who do initial roles like this and then it's some time before we like ever see them on screen again. No, but like for you to be a comedian and then you do this, it's just like there's nothing you can't do. There's nothing. There's nothing you can't do. It's on par with Eddie Murphy. Fuck Eddie Murphy compared to this. I know. Fuck that dude. <laughs> Fuck that dude. Because he's in also term- an asshole. 
But in terms of like sheer raw talent <laughs> yeah, uh, emerging sure. out of nowhere, sure. like it's just bonkers. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she is both so expressively fun and like those moments when she just cocks that half smile and smirks, mm-hmm. but also just tender and heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And then just that moment where she pulls up a chair while Albert is cooking and she's just waiting for him to explode the oven is so funny. And then he lights it on fire. She and the, she she's gone. Yeah, it's so funny. It's so funny. It's just so funny. She had to be the glue that held this movie together, and she's so much more than that. She's not even the glue. She has to be so captivating the entire time she's on screen. And it's Whoopi. She is. And because here's the other thing. She doesn't talk very much. She does all the voiceover, but she doesn't talk very much. And her her face is so expressive. Yeah, and if if you know anything about her comedy, her comedy was very character-based, which is probably the biggest reason. I mean, her audition was doing a comedy act about a stoned E.T. getting arrested in Oakland for possession of marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the thing. Knowing Whoopi, she could do a pretty fucking convincing E.T. I guarantee. Yeah. (laughs) Because she was that fucking good. Yeah, I believe it. Many of Spielberg's famous friends were in attendance at the set, including Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson. Watching her do it. And I'm sure she nailed it. And they all lost their shit. But I think what that shows is she understood character mm-hmm. and embodying character, sure. which means that she could say nothing and mm-hmm. still just be Seely. Oh, sure. That's all she had to do. Yeah. <sighs> she's so fucking she's, good. She's amazing. Who could have been better? No one. Alfre Woodard. No. <laughs> Alfre Woodard could have been anybody else in this movie. She would have been really good at this shit. She could have been great as Shug. Because here's the thing. Alfred Woodard, she's fabulous. She's a fabulous actress. But she's very intense in a way that you need some softness to Seely. Alfred Woodard would have been just too intense. Not soft enough. Seely has that childlike vision that Stephen has to have in his main character somehow or some way. And Whoopi just... Could naturally she, she convey that. She was able to do it. Oh. It's a treasure. Oh. We're going to get angry about it later. Next, we have Danny Glover as Albert. He's such a jackass in this film, but oh. in the best way. We talk about him in Saw, in our review of Saw. Oh, yeah, I forgot he was in that movie. But before this, he was in Escape from Alcatraz, Iceman, Places in the Heart, Witness, and Silverado. He doubled with Silverado and the color purple in the same year. Wow. Then after this, Lethal Weapon. Lonesome Dove, Lethal Weapon 2, Predator 2, Flight of the Intruder, Grand Canyon, Lethal Weapon 3, Angels in the Outfield, Operation Dumbo Drop, Gone Fishing, Lethal Weapon 4, Ants, Beloved, The Prince of Egypt, 3 AM, The Royal Tenenbaums, Manderlay, Dreamgirls, Shooter. We did talk about him in Dreamgirls as well. Oh, yeah. Be Kind, Rewind, Blindness, 2012, Death at a Funeral, Legendary, Rage, Dirty Grandpa, Sorry to Bother You, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and Jumanji, The Next Level. He's so good in that, too. What do we think about Danny Glover in this movie? Oh, he's fabulous because I hate him. Like, I thoroughly hate him. You thoroughly hate him. And, and then. <laughs> he, he, and he earns it all. He earns it all. But he earns the hate and he earns the redemption at the end. Yeah. He does. The, the nice thing about the redemption is that he expects nothing in return for the redemption. No, but he just wants the bad shit that's been happening to him to stop. That too. He, he knows there's only one thing he can do. He got to break that curse. He's. I got. She cursed me. I got. I got to make it right <laughs> with that woman. 
Everything you've done to me. Already done to you. does but he does it and he could have not and in doing it you can see that sense of peace come over like for him he's just like (sighs) and it's so complicated because you can also see that he's a product of how he was raised absolutely he was 100 raised this way and he was told to do something like i mean he just this is this is how he was taught and nobody ever stood up to him because that's the thing that's one of the things i love about Sophia and Har- Sophia's like, I am putting up this bullshit from you. Fuck off. Uh-huh. Because Harpo, the second Harpo starts listening to his dad is when his wife is like, fuck you. <laughs> I'm out. I'm fucking out. And then once he started, li- when Sophia came back and he starts listening to Sophia, things are all right. He gets the opportunity to yeah. be as complicated a character as he needs to be. And that what that's what makes it such a great role. Well, he's he's not just an abusive husband. I mean, he is, but also like he's so in love with this woman. I mean, that, that there's there's things that are so tragic about him. He's three dimensional. He is. He's a fully rounded character, and that's brilliant. Sure. Because otherwise, you would just loathe him completely. Yeah. Instead, like- you like try to understand him. <laughs> I'm not trying to, but I'm not trying to sympathize with him. But it's just like, what do you want from Seely other than to take care of your kids and just like take care of your business? But like, it just it's an, it's just interesting. It's it's a powerhouse performance. I I think that's really what it is. is you're you're in awe that Danny Glover is able to do that much with what feels like it could be a one note character. He could so be a one character. Uh, he's great. He's he's quite fabulous. Brian Dennehy went on record as saying Glover's performance moved him to tears in the theater. Oh. Character actor to character actor, man. That's some that's some high praise. That is some high praise. We have Margaret Avery playing Suge Avery. Mm-hmm. Before this, she was in Magnum Force, Which Way is Up, and The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, but she's also a well-known singer. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. When we think of Margaret Avery in this movie. She's lovely. She re- I mean, she really is. Um, you think she's going to be... This drunken, this drunken, and like, because the first time we meet her, she's she's shit face in the back of a car, and she says mean things to Seely, dying like, of alcoholism, basically. basically. And and then it's she's just hanging around. It's like, so you're really just hanging out in this dude's house with his wife and children, and you're just sleeping with them. Like it's so fucked up. But then we kind of understand, and that we, you know, Seely says it. He beats me when you're gone, so that's why Seely wants her there. And that makes like it's just you the relationship between Celia and Shug before before the audience knew there's a romance happening here. That friendship is just like, oh, they're both benefiting from this in a way that other people may not understand. I know it's not a performance of hers, but it's something that her performance earns and elicits. Uh-huh. One of the best scenes is when she comes back uh-huh. to the house the next time. Uh-huh. And both Albert and Seely are just thrilled that yeah. Shug is there. Yeah, like they're comes- both out of bed, running down the stairs with her husband. And then they find out Grady's there. Yeah, and it's just like, we and got then they're a both cold like, cough. "What?" 
so funny. But her characterization, you feel that energy of like, she is the hottest ticket in town. Yep. She is the most badass, talented performer. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she writes that song about Sailor, mm-hmm. and it's heartbreaking. Yep. <laughs> and then it plays throughout the rest of the movie because it's a fucking hit. Yep. Whew. There were a lot of who could have been betters for this role. Ooh. One of the main ones was Chaka Khan. Okay. She admitted she was too afraid to take the role at the time. Fair. Which is pretty amazing for Chaka Khan, who is known for being ridiculously overconfident. Sure. Also, who could have been better? Tina Turner. She would have been too distracting. Lola Falana, the first lady of Las Vegas. Oh. And Diana Ross. Fair. Diana Ross, great actress. Sure. But uh, Margaret Avery's really subtle. I think that's the thing. She brings subtlety and nuance to this performance. She, she, well, here's the other thing, and this is important and why you didn't pull somebody bigger. She's not focus pulling from Seeley. No. She's not. I mean- when she's singing and she's big, she's supposed to, and she does. But otherwise, it's all about Celie, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And now we get to Oprah fucking Winfrey. No, it's just Oprah. <laughs> As Sophia. Mm-hmm. This is her first movie. Filmed. I'm not going to give you credits. It's Oprah. It's Oprah. It's just Oprah. It's fucking Oprah. It's the Oprah. The queen of all entertainment. Oprahism. Yes, Oprah. <laughs> the queen of my favorite things. Are you ready? <laughs> what do we think of Oprah in this movie? Pretty damn good. I know. It's just like those other characters. You think it's going to be one note. Be one and note. then it takes a turn and it's like, oh, wow. Because I, I liked when we first met her. You think she's just going to be kind of sweet. And she's a little mouthy. A little mouthy to Albert, but I'm like, okay, all right. I love it. But which one Albert I- needs somebody to snap back at him. But that was nothing. The second they got married, it was, fuck you. I'm the woman of the house. I'm fucking in charge. <laughs> Take this baby. What do you want me to do with it? Feed him. And then she's getting to work. Like, I'm hungry. What do you want me to do about it? Your legs not work? I fucking love her. And then, you know, it- it's heartbreaking when Seely tells Harpo that, he should beat his wife. But, you know, that's all she knows. Yeah. And then I love when Sophia comes out and yells at Celia, like, I cannot believe you would do that to me. Because, you know, of course, Sophia hits Harpo back because, of course, she did. But she goes and yells at Celia, like, I've been fighting people my whole damn life, all the men in my family, and I come here and then you do that to me. I loved that scene. I think that was my favorite scene. All my life I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy. I had to fight my uncles. I had to fight my brothers. Girl, child ain't safe in a family means. But I ain't never thought I had to fight in my own house. I love Hoppo. God knows I do. But I kill him dead before I let him be. And I just, I love that scene because it was just like, uh-uh. The moment that cements it for me, honestly, is coming out of jail and having to drive Miss Millie. That whole sequence to me is gut-wrenching. It's gut But But from a performance sure. perspective, the pivot that she had to make in that character sure. oh, sh- to sh- perform that, you see all of the pain and you see all of 
the old Sophia sure. being just ramrodded down because she knows. she. I mean, she had to stuff it all down. It's gone. But what I love is in that last dinner scene oh, yeah. where Celie tells, I'm leaving, I'm going. And Sophia now knows that, oh, it's all still in there. She's just stuffed it down for so long. And now. Now Sophia's getting mouthy again. For, just for like, oh, a solid two minutes, she's just cackling. Sophia's going to be okay. She's still in there. That entire dinner table speech was a complete ad lib. Oh, I love it. It was prompted by Steven in the middle of filming. I assumed that they got the script and she was working with it. And he's like, this isn't working. Let's try something else. That worked. He wanted Oprah to express in some way how she felt the day she saw Celie at the market mm. when she had to shop for Millie. The second she finished, reportedly, Whoopi walked over to her, gave her a hug, and told her, quote, now you're an actress. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, well, reportedly, that led to a little bit of a feud between Whoopi and Oprah, because Oprah apparently rebuffed, what do you know? This is your first movie, too. <laughs> it's like a happy feud, though. <laughs> it's like, fuck you, bitch. I think they squashed that, but, you know, it's just like, ooh, okay. That sounds like a happy fight. <laughs> a rivalry. Like, that's a, a ribbing. Yep. Who could have been better? Nell Carter from Give Me a Break. Okay, yeah. And Jennifer Holliday from the original cast of Dreamgirls. Oh, okay. Because they're both amazing. Nell Carter, shit. Yeah. And so is Jennifer Holliday. Super talented women. Yeah, that's awesome. But Oprah, I like it being Oprah. She does great. Well, now we get to Arpons. Arpons. So we have Willard E. Pugh playing Harpo Johnson. He wound up being the mayor in RoboCop 2 later on. Okay. Akasua Busia, who plays Nettie Harris, okay. had a notable role in Tears of the Sun with Bruce Willis. Okay, that's one thing we did not talk about, but I did love. I love the choice of not switching actresses for Nettie, because they didn't. No, they didn't. Because we don't stay with her. No. It would have been so jarring to see her young and then to have a completely different woman for her to be older. Yeah. So I liked that while we did change actresses for Seely, we did not for Nettie. That made sense to me. Yeah. It was a, that was a good cinematic choice. She also wrote the 1998 adaptation of Beloved, oh. Toni Morrison's book with Danny Glover and Oprah Winfrey. We have Adolf Caesar playing old Mr. Johnson. Among other performances, he did narration for the trailers for Blackula, Hammer, Scream, Blackula, Scream, Sister Street Fighter, the 1978 Dawn of the Dead. Oh. And Day of the Dead. Cool. He's got that gravelly voice, I can imagine. It. His voice sounds like the professor in um, The Nightmare Before Christmas to me. <laughs> like, that's what that voice sounds to me. Oh, he's a horrible character. Oh, he's a horrible man. Good yeah. actor, though. Oh, sure. Ray Dawn Chong, daughter of Tommy. Okay. Playing Squeak. She had a little run there as a lead actress in the 1980s. Okay. So she was, she, she, had, her, all right. she had her little moment. But she's fun in this movie. Dana Ivey, playing Millie, you might recognize her as the desk clerk at the Plaza Hotel in Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Oh, she's a woman who's been in everything. Yes, she is the comic relief in like every fucking movie. Yeah, she, yeah. But that's the one that I went, oh yeah! She's one of the finest idiots in New York. Uh, Carl Anderson, playing the Reverend Samuel, he was the original Judas Iscariot in the film of Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay. Also singer, so works out. Larry Fishburne as Swain. It's Cowboy Curtis. Oh, he was so like, wow. Wow, Larry. You look good. David has a crush on Cowboy Curtis. What? He was hot. 
Am I wrong? He's all right. He's playing guitar in a juke joint? Go for it. He's all right. We have Leon Rippey playing the store clerk. He was Tom Nuttall in Deadwood. Huh, okay. Greg Philanjanis, a juke joint musician, he is a keyboardist who started off with Stevie Wonder's band from 1976 to 1981, mm-hmm. but he also worked and wrote with Michael Jackson on the albums Off the Wall Through Dangerous. Okay. So he was like a substantial part of Michael Jackson's band. Wow, okay. And has worked with tons of different musical artists. Cool. So he's a big fucking deal. Clarence Avent, an African musician, is known as the Black Godfather. He signed Bill Withers to a record deal, among others. Okay. Also a big fucking musician deal. We have Ndugu Chanclay as one of the African musicians. He co-wrote the song Let It Whip that you might hear prominently in the film Pitch Perfect and played drums on Billie Jean. Wow. And finally, as a churchgoer, it's Gail. Gail King is in this movie. Of course she is. <laughs> I just like that you said, it's Gail. Of course. All right. Well, we get to awards. Oh, okay. And we get to some controversy. Oh, fun. I like controversy. This was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Given this cast, that makes sense to me. It won zero. This is rude. This is the first film to feature three performances by black actors nominated for Oscars. It is also the first to feature multiple Oscar nominations by black women. And the first to have two black actors nominated in a single category. It was considered the best film of the year by most of the critics. Okay. And it was expected to win numerous awards. Most of what it was nominated for. Or a good chunk. But Steven didn't even get nominated. Now, Uh, he he hasn't said shit about that. I will say this. I'm not... Okay, I don't even know who does nominate this year, and I don't care at this moment. The only reason I'm not mad, because you know what would have happened? He would have gotten nominated. It would have been the only fucking award that won. Yeah. Because that's how it works. But this became one of the most controversial Oscars in history. Okay. The Academy has been widely criticized for several of the losses in, this, in these categories, and we will run through them now. Okay. We, I don't have the full nomination list, but I can tell you who they lost to. Okay. It lost Best Picture to Out of Africa. Uh, okay. It lost Best Actress. For Whoopi Goldberg to Geraldine Page in The Trip to Bountiful. I don't know what that meant. Margaret Avery and Oprah Winfrey were nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Okay. And they both lost to Angelica Houston in Pritzi's Honor. It lost Best Adapted Screenplay to Out of Africa. It lost Best Cinematography to Out of Africa. It lost Best Art Direction to Out of Africa. It lost Best Costume Design to Akira Kurosawa's Ron, which fucking fair. That movie That's, is gorgeous as hell. That makes sense. That, that one makes sense. I'm still like, I've seen parts of Out of Africa, and I'm like, so you went to the Sahara, good for you. Like, that's... It lost Best Original Song, Miss Seeley's Blues, to Lionel Richie's Say You, Say Me from the film White Nights. The funny part is Lionel Richie wrote the lyrics to Miss Seeley's Blues. Oh, so he was betting against himself. Really. Who knows? I mean, Miss Seeley's Blues was a very good song. Say You Say Me was a massive pop hit. Yeah. It yeah. lost Best Makeup to the movie Mask. That's the movie with Eric Stoltz. Oh, okay. Not the Jim Carrey film. No. <laughs> no. Different Mask. By the way, directing Sidney Pollock won for Out of Africa. I'm going to choose not to be angry about that one. It lost Best Original Score to Out of Africa. 
<laughs> Fun fact about the score, 12 people were nominated for the score, probably the most for an entire category, okay. because of a dispute over credit. Quincy Jones was the top build credit on the score, okay. but he got produced by because like a bunch of different people wrote shit for this, oh, okay. and then they got into a big legal fight about who about who it. actually did what. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that makes. Sense. And that concludes what is widely considered the worst Oscar story in history. I don't know if it's the worst, but it's pretty damn bad. Whoopi losing is probably the biggest snub of all. I don't care who else was nominated. I like I do want to know who else was nominated. I don't understand Angelica Houston. I could see how the two in the supporting hair could have split the ticket. And that's how Angelica Houston wins. Sh- sure. I, I get like I mean that's how Green Book won, let's be clear. Yeah. We know how that works. But I do I do want to know who else was nominated. For actress in a leading role, Anne Bancroft in Agnes of God. Okay. Meryl Streep in Out of Africa. Jessica Lange for Sweet Dreams, and then Geraldine Page in The Trip to Bountiful. Geraldine Page, by the way, uh, I believe Whoopi should have fucking won. Whoopi was so fucking good in this movie. I'm I'm not arguing with you. Like, that's bad. We thought some of the Oscar So White stuff was bad in the past few years. That's god awful. (laughs) That's just... 11 nominations zero oscars all right now we get to trivia so spielberg had producers peter goober and john peters banned from set at some point because their history of offering quote suggestions in production fair this makes a lot more sense because they were heavily tied to john landis and had been part of the infamous disaster around twilight zone the movie okay (laughs) again fair oh man sometime we'll have to talk about that story it's bad In an early interview for Titanic, Leonardo DiCaprio asserted that this was the film that made him want to be an actor. Fair. The acting's impeccable. It's such a a good movie. When Sophia takes her children from Harpo, his whistling was performed by Steven Spielberg. Hmm. They filmed the town scenes in Marshville, North Carolina, but they couldn't remove an electrical pole in the middle of the street, so they had to make a tree to hide it. Hmm. Shooting had to be put on hold frequently for freight trains that passed by. Harpo, of course, is the name of Oprah's production company, and is Oprah spelled backwards. Yep. Miss Seeley's Blues has now become a showbiz standard. It is regularly performed in reviews. And Lorna Luft and Liza Minnelli performed the song at the 1993 Tony Awards. Ooh. Real life sisters. Very cool. And Whoopi's actual daughter appears in the film as one of the children at the dinner table. And that is it for the color purple. Mm. And now we have to give ratings for this movie. What are we going to pick as our rating system? How many letters? Oh, I think you should go first. A lot of these have been my movies. That's true. Let's get your rating. This is the first one that we both haven't seen of the Steven films. I mean, I I think I'm just I'm just going to give it a five. Okay. Because there's nothing I would really change. Like, I think the writing's great. I think the direction's great. I wouldn't swap out any of the actors. Like, it's a really good story. And and anything that you could change would be really for if you were making it today in 2020. And that's that's a really different thing than the film that was made in 1985. And I think the movie that was made in 1985 is a really great movie. 
even today in 2020. I think it still has a lot of value and merit, despite like the sadness in the film. I was still crying at the end because I was really happy for these characters. So I was just like, I'm sad I didn't see this film earlier and I want to go see the musical now. So that's a five for me. I wanted to actually pull it down for a couple of those reasons. But now that you've said that, I actually give it a five because in a lot of ways, what this movie did was it didn't take away anything from what the novel might be. In fact, all I could think about was, God, I want to read this book. That's exactly what you said after it. I know it's going to be different. I know it's going to be a bit more bleak and a bit more stark. But I was like, it's like watching a movie based on historical events. And then like, okay, now I actually want to know, you know, the deeper story of what happened. Sure. I want to know the novel. I want to see the differences. But it it doesn't leave you wanting or make you think this is bad. It just makes you think, wow, what else is there to this story? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like if you did this today, it would have to be different. And it would almost have to be like a miniseries. You would need it to be longer. You would need more time to spend with some of the nuance. Because I think all you're missing from this story is a bit more depth and complexity to the the characters and and some of the things that they do over time sure you know when looking at the plot and things but i i don't it, think you need it i i don't know but sure. i also know that but for what this is and for the story steven's telling he knew and the screenwriters knew exactly what they needed to do to get the story across mm-hmm. and they do it really masterfully yep in a way that again we haven't seen in the series yet and I don't even know, thinking about Raiders and E.T., that he's necessarily done this well. Oh, yeah. I don't know. There's just something really impeccable about the way they told the story with yeah. care and attention and getting the talent they did. Yeah. Which is just outstanding. Yep. <laughs> five. Five letters. Five. <sighs> Great movie. Great movie. Well, now we're going to make another wild left turn. Oh, fun. Because we're going to go into the world of sci-fi. Oh, I like sci-fi. I've been wanting to watch more sci-fi. How about more dark sci-fi? Am I can be okay? We we need to do a sci-fi series. How about more dark sci-fi about dystopian pre-crime? No, we're living in that. (laughs) We're watching Minority Report. Yeah, fuck me. Welcome to the early 2000s, a banner time for filmmaking. Fine. This should uh fine. This should be interesting. I loved this movie when it okay. came out. Really into it. This should be interesting. Wonder if it's gonna hold up. Until next time. Bye everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.